Well, I think we need to escape into the movies, Dan. <laughs> if only we could. <laughs> we sure can stream. Yeah, I've been streaming something every day, almost maybe two times a day. Wow. I couldn't tell you really more than one title that I saw, though, because sure. boy, do I waste a lot of time just finding something to watch, and then I watch it, then I yeah. forget it immediately. Yeah, that happens to me, too. I'm much better at uh, pulling the trigger. I used to be kind of paralyzed by choice, and so I don't watch anything, but now I'm pretty good at just one of the first things that looks interesting, just go. So I have a follow-up on an old movie that nobody cares about anymore, and then I have two or three streaming titles, and then... Um, but I do. You do. You I do care. remember. You care. Oh, that's a lovely thing. So I don't know how we want to do it. I guess we both saw one new release. I mean, I guess it's technically a film from last year, but it was not a big release. So the the, the Amazon release of Blow the Man Down, I think, is that movie's big kind of public debut. Yeah, so you want to talk about that first? Go there first? Yeah. Sure. Um so, um, yeah, Blow the Man Down is a 2019 uh, comedy drama mystery film. <laughs> Some of those are a little... Mm, comedy drama mystery, my, my yeah. favorite genre. Uh, directed by and written by Bridget Savage-Cole and Danielle Crudy. Is a, uh, all right, so on my Letterboxd review, I called this Thoroughbreds meets Fargo, but in Maine, and <laughs> better than any of that sounds. Oh, um, I thought it was great. I think it could be a series is kind of more yeah. how it played to me. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have spent more time with the characters, allowed the drama to move slowly yeah, yeah. and to, and to just let the actors really sink their teeth into these ridiculous roles right, right, and to build right. a lot of the suspense. I mean, I just thought it was so funny and surprising how this group of older women are kind of this small town mafia among themselves. Right. It was so refreshing and different. At first I felt like, okay, this is definitely, this is the kind of movie that doesn't exist without the Coen brothers who did not invent noir, but they kind of pioneered. Let's put noir in all sorts of these peculiar little American ecosystems. And so this feels like, you know, an in-over-their-head crime story that's in Maine this time, on the shore, in the fishing town. But yeah, it does eventually find its own way and then explore some of that really unique and interesting material with the backstory of the ladies and this uh, this brothel, just unlike anything I've ever seen before, for sure. Yeah, and um, what's the name of the young woman who plays one of the sex workers who's also in Glow? Oh, yeah. Gail Rankin. Just couldn't remember her name in the movie. Yeah, Alexis. So we, yeah, so the story, basically, we meet two sisters, the Connolly sisters, who are burying their mother. There's a funeral. We kind of get to know the personalities. One sister is kind of the uh, straight-laced, more responsible one who's in charge of the household and the family business. And the other sister is a little, little more reckless. And they're dealing with things in their own way. And there's kind of overtones about their mother and who she was. And then there's some crimes and some happenings. And uh, yeah, I think the first thing isn't a spoiler, really, um, to say that um, Mary Beth, played by Morgan Saylor, decides to hook up with a shady character who we discover is involved in the underbelly of some of this local business that her mother had a part in arranging years ago. And she discovers that one of the young women from the brothel has been murdered 
and she realizes she herself is in danger. She takes matters into her hands. And then the rest of the film is her trying to cover that up as well as discovering some of the shocking secrets that exist in the town. Yeah. And I think one of the things I liked about this movie is the way that it is, it's kind of a feminist movie without being like performative or in your face about it. But every male character is a dirtbag or just useless. There's a cop named Justin who's kind of a nice guy, but he's just, he's basically might as well not exist. Well, he's there for eye candy, which is also part of women's empowerment. Right. Um, But I love that this town is essentially managed by this group of old ladies. I I love sweet movie old ladies, and it's got some some great ones, uh, including uh, June Squibb, who's wonderful, Uh, Marceline Hugo, Hugo, and Adam Tool. And then there's the uh, madam of the brothel played by Margot Martindale. And she could be played by no one else. Yes. I mean, <laughs> right. Such a singular character, uh, but just perfect. You've yeah, never seen great. any character like it before, but you know, you know it immediately. Well, to me, she is playing a different version of Claudia from the Americans. Do you watch the Americans? No, no. Oh, that is something for you to binge in this time of crisis. Okay. There's this yeah. wonderful scene where she just gets the daylights kicked out of her and it's hilarious, but it's a very similar sort of character where they, are wise and menacing, but also evil, and you should stay clear of them, but they'll also maybe help you. She has the market cornered on that character. I also like the the filmmaking vibe of the movie. It's not quite twee. It's not quite like Wes Anderson. It's just a little bit stylish where it opens, you know, it has some singing of some, some fishermen. Uh, it, is, it has a really great sense of place, and it uses music and uh cinematography and things to really establish very quickly where you are and um what it's like how cold and gray and drab and stinky it is and i don't know i did appreciate that about it a lot yeah i i thought it looked great i liked that it was you know had a random greek chorus <laughs> pointlessly yeah. except right. for except for mood i i like the setting thought the performances were good the story was interesting i laughed a lot this is a high, it's a highly recommended for me. All right. <clears throat> a nice little movie streaming on Amazon prime. Uh, give it a watch. I streamed two other things, Dan, and watched the Blu-ray of Dr. Sleep. So I don't know where we go next. Why don't you <laughs> tell us something that you saw in the last week? I have to think about it. You know what I watched? And I'm now remembering I watched, um, super eight. Oh, the J.J. Abrams film? Yeah. What's I watched the J.J. Abrams joint as well, but you go ahead and tell. <laughs> it's been a while since I saw that one. Yeah, What'd I'm trying think? to remember what it was about. Ah, yes. It's an Amblin um, homage, basically. It's an E.T. Yeah. Half it, E.T. homage, half monster movie. Half It, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Where you've got kind of this plucky group of um, teen, you know, younger teen boys and one girl who are making a movie. And, and they, and there's a train accident that occurs behind them as they're shooting. And then all sorts of crazy things start happening in their neighborhood after this accident. That's right. Yeah. Remember? And um, yeah. so, hey, I turned on that movie and I enjoyed it well enough. And I feel like I was completely unaware of it. It was a 2011 movie mm-hmm. and I feel like I'd never heard of it. 
which hmm. is kind of kind of weird because it seems like it had some notoriety. Yeah, I saw it, it in the movies. Out. Yeah, uh, with with friends, I think even. Yeah, my my Josh was like, I thought we saw that together, and I was like, I didn't even know you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I watched that, and I don't have too much to say about it except yeah. that I had an all right time watching it. Okay. Yeah. I remember thinking it was okay and that the monster was kind of a CGI goop monster and that uh, it was just kind of derivative, but that was kind of, it was pre stranger things, but it was that kind of, uh, right. Yeah. 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 It was JJ Abrams kind of cutting his teeth as a blockbuster director and the Mm -hmm. spirit of Spielberg. Well, I'll, I'll segue from that if I may into, um, I saw a movie that was produced by JJ Abrams, not directed, but it's called overlord. And it's uh, it's a weird Nazi zombie super soldier movie about some American GIs in World War II who um, they uh, parachute into Nazi Germany or it might have been occupied France. I think it was occupied France. And they end up infiltrating a Nazi facility where they're kind of trying to create these super soldiers who are turning into these crazy zombies. And it's a, it's a genre movie. It's a monster movie where it's not about the war. It doesn't have anything serious to say, except perhaps that, you know, authoritarian Nazis are willing to turn themselves into monsters to try and uh, force their superiority. But um, it's OK. It's got, you know, a good, a good enough young cast. It's interesting. It's a little derivative. The monster stuff is is less interesting than the setup and it's you know an exciting movie as they parachute in actually their plane is shot down and as the soldiers who survive find each other once they get in and you got zombies chasing them around it's significantly less interesting but interesting diversion for uh, you know i was gonna say a sunday afternoon but i guess every afternoon is now sunday afternoon <laughs> it is oh you know what else i watched mm. i watched the original candy man Oh boy! In preparation, <laughs> I'd never seen it before. Right? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought he was yeah. a much more like romantic monster than a lot of uh, these mm-hmm. things, and of course, so much of it's so dated and ridiculous. Um, but uh, you got Virginia Madsen in an early role. Oh. Not like she's that wonderful, but she's not bad. And <laughs> you're like laughing, but like it, it was not bad. I thought that it was a, it was a pretty good slasher thriller for those days and it more reminds me of movies that are made today than back then i mm-hmm. think it was a little ahead of its time even if it didn't have the uh production value capabilities oh, a lot of people do swear by that movie a lot of people say they saw it when they were impressionable and that it was quite disturbing yeah i would not say it's really disturbing much at all mm-hmm. um but i was glad that i watched it yeah well, you know what? I'm going to skip the party because this is a, this is the second week in a row that I just can't even get myself to start talking about the party. I I hated the party. Uh, <laughs> I want to see it now. Maybe what's that? I want to see it now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe you should check it out. <laughs> Sounds like I'm bad at movies now. I should probably I'd probably like it. Yeah. Um. So I'll just I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make this quick, but I got to talk about Doctor Sleep. Yeah. As you know, I've become a king head. I like uh, reading and especially listening to Stephen King books. And I started this one earlier in the year and it took me a while to get anywhere in it. Weather's finally been nice. So I've done a lot of walking and listening lately. And I've also had the time. So uh, finished Dr. Sleep. Not the best Stephen King book. And weird that it, there's a sequel to The Shining at all. But I like the book enough. 
it really feels like two things as does the movie the movie feels like three things because you've also got this homage to the kubrick movie but you've got the story of young danny torrance growing up with his issues and then you've got the story of the young girl and rose the hat these crazy energy zombies um that they're kind of like forced together and the, the book's okay i heard the movie was good uh, and then I heard that the movie was not good. But then I heard that the director's cut of the movie was really good. So I was excited to watch this three-hour version. Uh, that's long, but it's still not really enough to to contain all of a good Stephen King book. And, uh, oh, the movie's bad. I didn't care for it. I well, liked it's so bad. The, I, I, I liked maybe the first half hour, the setup. The, it, it's, and again, I, I don't want to fall into that trap of just judging it by how much it conforms to the book that I liked. But it was quite in step with the book in terms of Danny, you know, showing how after the events of the Overlook, he learns how to lock up his monsters and he, he kind of learns to use his gifts for good. And he becomes known as Dr. Sleep. And he uh, that stuff wasn't very well communicated in the movie. They kind of rushed through some of that stuff. But um, I was on board for that. And then the story kind of takes off with Rose the Hat and the True Knot and Abra Stone. And I felt like it just went crazy off the rails. And then it gets to the ending and it feels like it has to do this fan service tribute to The Shining. And then it just it just had lost me completely by that point. The Overlook Hotel uh, explodes at the end of King's book, the original Shining. So it's not around. So it's not in the book of Dr. Sleep. And it's just that the grounds where it used to be ends up being a campground and that's where the true not have kind of their home base. So Danny's reluctant, you know, in the movie, he kind of goes there on purpose, which I thought was weird that he'd go back to this place. That was such a terrible experience for him. Anyway, I'm doing the, the book ranting that I didn't want to do. What was your, what were your issues with the movie, Dan? We didn't really talk about it much at the time. Well, it was, was it three or four years ago that it came out? So anyway, it was last year. I, I just remember being bewildered by it, um, finding a lot of bad laughs in it, thinking it was way off on tone, that the some of the characters seemed too old-timey, some seemed too contemporary. I thought that there were a lot of plot holes. I don't remember what they were. And I just left feeling, why in the world did they make that? What in the world was this based on? And it yeah. sounds like it wasn't really based on its own source material. Yeah, and this, you know, there's a thing where the characterization from a good book is always difficult to get into a film, but it can be done. It has been done. But I felt like in this one, it really just kind of steamrolled over some of the best character stuff in the book. But yeah, I feel like the tone is all over the place. And the, the biggest sore thumb of the whole movie is the sequence with um, Tremblay, Jacob Tremblay. Right, right. As the baseball boy. In the book, this horrible murder of this little boy is like whispered it's like experienced from afar and talked about after the fact as a lot of things in stephen king there's a lot of horrific things that happen to children in stephen king books but they are the impetus for other things better things to happen mm -hmm. portraying it <laughs> hiring you know arguably the best child actor and yeah. the most rec recognizable child actor and then painstakingly like I, I guess it's extended a bit in this version, so maybe it was even worse, but you've got this blood spraying in his face, and he's screaming, no, no, please don't hurt me. It was awful. It was unbearable for no reason. It was, it was also laughable because it's so stupid. Right. Uh, that was a real disappointment. 
Yeah, that was the scene where notoriously on the set, the rest of the actors were shook and Tremblay just stood up and gave his dad a high five and walked to craft services. Like he's good. Yes. You know, but, yeah, there's footage. But of the other actors were very disturbed, yeah. as was the audience. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll. We don't need to spend too much time on this dumb movie that we should have talked about months ago. But the other thing that I want to mention is is uh, Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the Hat. Weird, weird Stephen King stuff. But I liked her in the book. She's kind of a weirdly sexy character. She's a little bit like over the hill. And there's just this interesting thing in the book where, unlike a lot of Stephen King's books, the evil in this book is its time is up. It's, it's you know, a lot of times in stories in general, but in Stephen King's stories, evil is at your heels and evil is going to win until the last minute when, you know, good finds a way to to prevail. But in this, there's a weird thing in this story that the true knot are dying out and Rose is kind of past her prime and they encounter... There's no point in the book when Rose the Hat has Abra Stone on the on the ropes. They're like constantly being foiled by her. Every time they go for her, she tricks them. The, you know, she it's it's really kind of cool and different the way this young girl in the book um, really sends these people scattering and just like dominates them and decimates them. And I felt like the movie didn't do a whole lot to capture that. It was very kind of it just was uh, lame. <laughs> It was just kind of deflated and lame. Her father doesn't die in the book. I didn't know why they did that. I guess they wanted to turn her into like get that thing where by the last act she's cold and she's a badass and she's been through it all. Um, I don't know. I didn't feel like these were humans. And that's the weird thing about Stephen King is that he can write the most ridiculous stories and you still feel like the characters are human beings. And this movie lost that by, you know, pretty early on. Yeah, I felt like... I mean, there was an episode of Friends where Ross wants to wear this hat, wants to make this hat part of his persona. There's one of those backwards old man caps, you know, and everyone kind of makes fun of him. And the his idea is, well, if you didn't know me at all and you just saw me walking down the street, you wouldn't think a thing of this guy wearing this cap. You wouldn't think I looked weird. It's only because you know me, you know, and I felt like what's her name? The hat. Rose the hat. That looked like that was not her hat. It, right. I felt like I knew her and she was trying to do something like having a midlife crisis or something. And it just wasn't working for her. The whole right. persona wasn't working for her. Yeah. And I felt like maybe it was a miscasting situation or the wrong tone. I, yeah. I just yeah. did not like that character in the movie. Yeah. Well, and in the, in a book, Rose the hat, your imagination fills it in. And she certainly not much time is spent talking about the actual hat, but in the movie it's there. And there's a, there's a little featurette on the Blu-ray about we found the hat and it was a genuine, authentic, you know, 19th century magician's hat. Like, oh my God, as if this was some Stupid. iconic thing that America has been waiting to see portrayed mm-hmm. and which leads to the other big problem this movie has, which is the iconography of Kubrick's movie and how this movie can't hold a candle to Stanley Kubrick. And, uh, I don't love The Shining as a movie. I preferred the book, and I understand that Stephen King does not care for the Kubrick movie. But say what you will, Stanley Kubrick was a filmmaker with a singular vision, and The Shining is a, a piece. It's a piece of work that you know stands um, 
it's timeless and it's amazing as a as filmmaking it's just not the best version of that story i don't think and then this movie comes along and it just it didn't to me it felt not much different from ready player one which like had uh, did you see that the spielberg yes, video game uh-huh. pastiche yeah. and that had a shining sequence and to me it was like well we already got recreations of the shining a couple years ago why are, why are we acting like this is necessary it was i felt like that stuff was kind of embarrassing yeah it felt old anyway all right that's it the final word on dr sleep no one will ever talk about it again oh i will <laughs> okay bring it up next week oh you know what else i rewatched mm. was there will be blood oh wow that's on my list to revisit yeah maybe we should talk about that some other time i don't know because yeah. that would be a good movie for a conversation but i didn't sure. remember a lot of that movie i just kind of remembered big pieces big ideas of it yeah. but not really what happened mm-hmm. and I, I was really uh, re-entranced by it. I enjoyed it a lot. I actually have a short list of, of quarantine titles that I want to see, and, and part of it is catching up on P.T. Anderson. I haven't seen The Master. I haven't seen Inherent Vice. So yeah. uh, I'll probably make that part of a little... I watched The Master movie. a week or so ago. Did I tell you that? No. Mm, I did. You should Maybe watch it, and, and then we can talk about what we think. We have a lot of uh, a lot of scheduled conversations at this point. I think that maybe we should uh, do a better job preparing for what we're yeah. going to say, <laughs> deciding what we're going to talk about in advance. Well, it would certainly probably be easier to do this now. I mean, I, I'm talking as if I'm sitting around all day. I'm not. My job has actually intensified with what's going on since, you know, I work on the website for an institution and that means oh, yeah. constant updates and evolution of, of, uh, resources and things like that but yes i am certainly not going out at night so i am watching i'm streaming stuff just about every night Qu- more coordination would be doable all right let's do that then. all right all right is that is that segment one it is all right well we'll be back in a moment <laughs> we're going to talk about uh james l brooks 1997 film as good as it gets goodbye Welcome back, Dan and Josh. Was this my selection, Dan? I think this was my selection this week. It was. Of one of your favorite movies. Of one of my favorite movies. <laughs> one of my favorites as well, but it, it's it got to have been uh, 15, 20 years since I saw it. So I must have watched this movie so many times on DVD back in the day because it, it had that thing that like Star Wars and E.T. have where I anticipated every line. I knew the rhythm of it. I know the score. Like it, it, this is a, this movie is engraved in my mind so this is of course uh as good as it gets written and directed by james l brooks although it was a script by mark andrus that had famously i guess kicked around hollywood for many years called old friends until james l brooks bought it and completely rewrote it into uh the movie that we know today uh yeah there's a lot of legend and a lot of of trivia about this movie and i'm not sure it's all in the up and up they say that it was called old friends right up to the end when Hans Zimmer suggested the title be changed. Did he write the score? Cause that does not sound like a, a, a Hans Zimmer score. I don't know what he's doing. Um, It is. It is a Hans Zimmer wow. score. Boy, he's, he's changed his aesthetic over the years. Why would it be called old friends? The kind of legend about the movie is that it's not supposed to be a romantic comedy. 
is that it's supposed to be an ensemble comedy where on the set the the sparks between Jack and Helen who had a 24 year age difference right. um was such that it it they just realized it had to become a romance even so old friends is not a great title for it even if it was just as much about Simon and whoever else as it is about Melvin and and Carol who were the old friends yeah i don't know is Jack Nicholson their old friend i assume there like, must have been dialogue it might have been contextual to some dialogue that was cut, you know, not a good title. <laughs> no, so it doesn't make sense. We're all the better for it. Yeah. So Jack Nicholson plays Melvin Udall, the misanthropic asshole author uh, who lives next door to Simon, a gay artist. And uh, they, well, it says here in the synopsis, they form an unlikely friendship after the artist is assaulted in a robbery. This is James L. Brooks at the height of his powers, making a movie that feels um, effortless and breezy and, and perfect. I mean, it's kind of uh, contrived and writery, I'd say, but it's also deliciously funny and oddly warm. Jack Nicholson plays Melvin as a kind of, I don't know that this character exists so much anymore. He's like the lovable racist asshole. Yeah. There's definitely a, a type of character, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. This might have been like the apotheosis of that whole thing. And that, to be honest, that's one of the things that I was concerned about in revisiting it. I was concerned how his character would hold up in a 2020 rewatch and also with the portrayal of uh, gay guys in, in the movie. It had been so long since I revisited, I didn't know if it would be cringy. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to what I actually thought about those two things when I watched it. So yeah, Melvin is this OCD misanthrope. He kind of creates space around himself by being vulgar and, 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 uh, bigoted and hurling insults at people. Uh, but his routine, his daily routine involves going to a diner where Carol, this, uh, this harried single mother with a sick son, who's just trying to earn her keep, she has to deal with him. He, he Part of his routine has become that he sits in her section, orders the same thing every day, puts out his plastic silverware, and uh, events transpire, and uh, Simon, his gay neighbor, who's an artist, is attacked, and... Uh, God damn, I'm doing a really bad job. I'm all over the place. <laughs> you keep He's, saying gay neighbor. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, this movie deals in types, right? You've got the asshole author. And but, he's the like the, but he's the straight and she's a straight too, right? Yes, he's okay. a straight. That's correct. Thank you. I'll just identify everyone. But... Thank you. Let's do that. I'm remembering just from my own experience, rewatching the movie. I was I was thinking like, are they over the top? Is it embarrassing? Is it is it bad representation? And I watched it and I didn't I don't think it is. No, they're great. Thinking back, this might be one of the first times that I was prompted to empathize with gay people in a movie that might be weird to say and i might be wrong i think what the movie does get a little weird and wrong is just the portrayal of the new york art scene it feels like james l brooks has no idea what he's portraying with yeah that with was that. bizarre it was weird but um i don't know i'm talking way too much dan so why don't you hop in and, and speak um I've, I've always liked oh gosh i'm way too loud i've always liked this movie a lot it's one of those uh, coming of age times for me at the movies where I feel like this was where I began to go as uh, I mean I was a teen but feeling like I'm adult at the movies um, and that was a really good film year it was uh, the year of Titanic and LA Confidential and Goodwill Hunting and wow, one of the yeah. yeah one of the first years that I felt like I saw all the movies 
And I went to this with my grandparents. Wow. <laughs> randomly at the cheap theater. It must have been, you know, well after the Oscars at the time. And they really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed it. And it made me, ha- it's kind of like a happy memory movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the performances a lot. I think Jack Nicholson does what I can't imagine another actor doing. And I don't want to say getting away with like he's being naughty, but I'm saying his character's um, mental state and way of life and motivations are not easily defined. I couldn't quickly put into words who Melvin Udall is um, because there's more than just being an asshole, but there's a lot of that too. And he's got um, some Ill- issues with mental illness that motivate him, but it's not all that, you know, and I think that somehow Nicholson holds all of that together in a way that's really great. And I love Helen Hunt's performance. People on Twitter think that hers is, you know, the least happy best actress win of the nineties. I disagree completely. She's one of my favorites. Yeah. There's just a warmth from her and a range and a humor. And she knows how to handle Melvin like nobody else in her life in his life does. And it doesn't seem to raise her anxiety to confront him. Whereas everybody else is so anxious around him. I love Greg Kinnear's performance and to, you know, a lesser degree, because it's a smaller performance, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. Ostensibly both straight men to me playing gay in a way that you can see and plays pretty true to life, I think. And is very human. I don't know how I would cast it today. Probably not with, two actors like that Hmm. um the age difference is so strange for some reason i accept it between the two of them Mm -hmm. but it's another thing where on this side of history i'm older than she was at the time she was 34 yeah that's wild at the Mm -hmm. time that she she plays this character that in my mind should be so much older but it works yeah um ebert's review i looked back at it and he gave it three stars but with a lot of reservations and I'm not sure what I think about it. Um, he feels like it could have been a more formulaic uh, rom-com sitcom thing and been more successful, or it could have actually delved a little deeper into the issues of its characters, which would not have allowed for a happy ending. Cause the reality is that these two people cannot be together. You know, their, their right. relationship is not going to go anywhere. And that tension the... is there to the final moments of the movie. Yeah. I mean, th- there's too many issues between them. Can you imagine Melvin, you know, living with her or them moving into his apartment with that small boy right. and her mother? That would not work. Yeah. He, he has her mother, many... who I believe is younger than Jack Nicholson, by the right. way. Right. Yeah, I'm sure she is. He has too many issues to be able to live with people. And luckily he's found a career for himself where he is able not to have to live with anybody. And she has a severe panic disorder and there's too much anxiety between the two of them to be able to manage life together. Maybe they could have been friends from a distance. Maybe old friends would have been a thing as it pertains to, you know, Melvin's tirades that are racist and homophobic. They were then they still are. And that's kind of what they're supposed to be. The humor to me isn't in, Oh, look what he got away with saying, the characters almost look at him knowingly and know not to be offended because this guy's got troubles of his own almost to a person when they receive that abuse. They're just kind of like, huh, and walk away without seeming like they were harmed. 
Yeah. They just seem to know that this, this, this is a hurt person. I don't know how you would make that different today because if you need someone to say something racist or homophobic, you can, it would be the same sorts of stuff. Yeah. There's so much about it that's specific to performance and writing and the time and the, you know, the, the vibe of the movie that it's, it's a little sitcom-y, I think. Yeah. Um, and that makes it all work. It's, it's amazing. And also you see some of James L. Brooks later movies and you realize, you know, this is not just effortless. Like this is a real, uh, magical brew here. Um, he wasn't always so successful with follow-up movies. Yeah. Helen Hunt is impossible not to love in this role. And my take just thinking back was I was remembering how I, I thought she was so amazing here and so deserving of her Oscar. And then I was disappointed that she didn't go any further. I felt like she didn't have much of a career after this or that she tried and the movies were misfires. Well, Um, she had that string of Emmy wins for Mad About You and then the Oscar. To me, she accomplished more in that decade or so than many actors do in a whole career. That's what I came to realize was that I'm thinking of this as the starter. She won an award and she was great. Let's see what else she can do. When in reality, this, you know, she apparently took a few years off of acting after this because she'd been working for decades and decades and had accomplished uh, this. So I don't want to belittle, you know, what an accomplishment this is uh, by being greedy and saying, why couldn't we have more? But I just thought, you know, to me, she's at like Tom Hanks level. Mm hmm lovable screen actor that I would watch in anything. Yeah, she's wonderful. And I mean, she returned in the sessions. She was uh, Oscar nominated for that. Mm. I did not see that movie. I am, I could imagine her just having the roles of her choice. Not like everyone just gets the roles of their choice, but I'm saying like as an older actress, right. just getting the right character called into a movie and just hitting it out of the park. I don't, I, I think about whether how this movie would work if it did not, turn into a romance and i also don't know if i buy the idea that they stumbled there's a famous story that in that last scene they weren't supposed to kiss and then james l brooks yelled out kiss her man which is kind of gross if that's true but i don't see how that's true you don't make a movie like that yeah i i was i was interested in this rewatch to sort of notice that there were romantic tensions and undertones but nothing that had been overt, even when they go out to dinner, that right. it could totally just be a dinner that they went out to. Yeah. And to me, the story could have shown how this couldn't become a romance. It could have done that just as well. Right. Um, they could they wanted that line about, you know, why can't I just have a normal boyfriend and the it doesn't mm. exist, you know? Right. <laughs> just kind right. of like a good insight about life that everybody's got their um inner uh panicked, anxious hurtful person and this idea that there's a perfect person out there unless you're in a pretty toxic relationship who's just going to go along with whatever you want and isn't going to cause you any grief that doesn't exist you know right and they wanted that moment but they didn't need to have it yeah they didn't you know why not just hey i spoke badly to you and then he shows up and they decide to go walk and get some bread and this isn't going to work if he's not going to walk on the cracks you know Right. Sort of thing. And then they're just two people who are getting bread, like the script says. Yeah. And what if what if Simon had a more of a part? And what if it was about these these lives are intertwined and these people help each other get through life? I don't know. I wonder if that if that was the original vibe of the movie. I wonder how that could have worked. It maybe wouldn't have been as satisfying. People want to see the the two leads 
hook up, I guess, but that's just the, the thick tension of there's no way this is going to work, even with this cute little ending. Uh, that's all I could think about was that this does not mean that they're happily ever after. There's no way. No. I mean, later that day, because the, the problems that they experienced on that trip will, will only escalate. Right. And I want to know more about Simon. I want to know that he's okay. Mm-hmm. Living inside Melvin Udall's world is not the ultimate happy ending for him, I would imagine. No, no. Something I did like is how they left it open regarding his relationship with Frank, because there's kind of this open, are they some sort of a couple or do they hook up sometimes or is it only business or, you know, I, I, I saw some truth in that. Yeah. IMDb says that Frank is bisexual, by the way. I don't know who knows that or why they know it or why they typed it on IMDb, but there you go. Wow. Well, that's interesting to know. I noticed on Wikipedia page that um, Maya Rudolph is is fifth build. Really? (laughs) In this, because now this is a Maya Rudolph movie. there. I know. She um, is ranked higher than uh, Helen Hunt's mother. And That's Skeet Ulrich <laughs> and Yeardley Smith. Wow. What do you think um, of Yeardley Smith's appearance here? Because I think it's great and you just cannot escape Lisa Simpson. No, you can't. But I do like that James L. Brooks, you know, likes to slip a Simpson into most of his movies. I think she's great. She's wonderful. And she seems like the kind of friend you'd have in the art world. <laughs> like that's uh-huh. or is she manager or friend. She seems to be like the financial piece yeah. of his operation. There was something that true about her character. It might just be because she's such a magnetic person um, right. anyway. But... And that could have been such an annoying character of someone yeah. who's bursting into tears and not able to get through what they have to say. And somehow she she holds that and carries it with right. a plum. It was good. I guess that's part of the magic of this movie is that there is humanity in every li- to the littlest part and the littlest corner of the story and that's just kind of james l brooks says that he knows how to get sympathy out of you know people being awful there's some kind of alchemy in the way that he arranges the world of 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 a movie like this more weird casting stuff uh skeet ulrich is one of the is the is the model for simon uh jamie kennedy is one of the other oh uh, yeah yeah that's right ruffians (laughs) which is weird. And then an inordinate number of directors, famous directors in bit parts in this movie. Lawrence Kasdan of The Big Chill and writer of a couple of Star Wars movies is um, Melvin's Mm -hmm. psychologist. Harold Ramis, of course, is the doctor he hires for Carol. And uh, Shane Black is the the manager of the diner. Hmm. I think there's one other. I think Todd Salons is in there. Just weird. That's I don't fun. know if that's just a James L. Brooks director club kind of yeah. a thing. I had a great time rewatching this movie. It felt like putting on, you know, an old pair of sweatpants or something. Totally. And I, there are things that have made it into my just daily lexicon that are they're from this movie. I won't repeat, but. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This movie famously rated R and then appealed and then re-rated PG-13 without oh, any Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. fun. It is. I did notice that it is quite on that edge, um, especially for the 90s. Uh, but I think it, it's better as a PG-13 movie that more people can see. Yeah. Well, what's what's it for? For language or what? Language and nudity. But none of the nudity is particularly Yeah, but the nudity is, 
is more artful, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm trying to think of my James L. Brooks uh, pantheon. I have, I really haven't, I saw Terms of Endearment many, many years ago, but it's just not in my memory strongly enough to even rank. He's only directed six films, Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News, I'll Do Anything, As Good As It Gets, Spanglish, and How Do You Know? Oh, I saw Spanglish back in the day. Yeah. That was his uh, follow-up to As Good As It Gets, but it was uh, seven years later. Yeah, I'm sure I saw that for the reason of his directing. I don't think I saw it. It was not very well received. Yeah, I don't remember th- it thinking it was bad, but it wasn't as it wasn't as good as it gets. I'd say this movie holds up and then some. It has some, you know, I don't think you could write a character. I, I maybe you could write a character like Melvin, but you'd have to cast somebody like Nicholson. Yeah. Or, or, I totally think that it I mean We've become even more overt with our hatred and rhetoric, and I don't know. I think that that guy still exists and worse. But when I think about real-life people who talk like that, it's not cute and endearing, and the people who make space for them are usually just kind of looking the other way. So it's definitely a pure entertainment universe thing that this would be a lovable character. Yeah, there's a cleverness there that might elude the usual... um, people who hold his views but also it, it's not quite like an archie bunker i think i called him an archie bunker but archie bunker mm, no. believes those things and they just fall out of him because he's a dummy this guy melvin is smart and he's using this he's weaponizing things that he knows he's needling he's making you know he's making space around himself so it is different in that way but is that better or worse when somebody's a bigot by design or when someone's just a bigot by uh, nature yeah it's interesting Anyway, all right. Uh, that's all I got, Dan. We got a lot of watching to do. Some organized watching to do. Yes. Yeah, so what do we have on the table? I'm I'm going to watch Swallow uh, sometime this week, I believe. Yeah, I'll watch that. Uh, you recommended Lady in a Cage? Yes. I got to catch up on that. <laughs> You're going to love it. All right. And um, we could talk about There Would Be Blood if you want to. Yeah, all right. Some, some P.T. Anderson. Yeah. I'm going to make a note out of it i also watched uh the master that i i'm gonna just show my cards i didn't enjoy it uh yeah i gotta catch up with that and inherent vice is another one that a lot of people hate i could look into that one for sure i've seen that we'll do our little uh pta series coming up Mm -hmm. groovy uh thanks everybody i hope you're keeping yourselves occupied and safe and isolated and uh, you know, watch some movies. Well, I'm going to leave this in, us talking about it, so that the listeners can watch these movies. A holds up guide in. for quarantine. Yeah. This has been our podcast. We've been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. And uh, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>